Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Several weeks ago, and we've been journeying through it, and, and I've been blessed by it just by being able to study through it and preach through it. I've been blessed by it, and I pray that you have been too. And really, it's, it's, it's driven home um, our, our vision for our church, which is to see people live on mission where they live, learn, work and play. And so our goal as a church is to be gospel centered, which means that um, everything that we do flows from what God has already done. Our preaching should mirror the gospel. Our singing should mirror the gospel. Our service should mirror the gospel. It should be our driving motivation and factor. And the reason why we go to work, the reason why we get education is not for us, but it is to represent Christ in the world. And so my efforts at my job, my career ambitions, my striving and thriving is not so that I can feed my own selfish ambition, but I'm working or I'm schooling as uh, unto the Lord because I'm stewarding what he has given me. And so I represent him at my job. I represent him at the classroom. And when you have that perspective, you realize that everything that you face in the world is not about you, but you are doing it as a representative of somebody else. And so that gives a new meaning to your purpose. It gives a new meaning to why you are working. You're not just going to your job to collect a check. You're going to your job. You get a check. That's a byproduct. But you are going to your job to represent God in the world and make the secular spaces sacred. You're going to show your co-workers what Jesus looks like. You're going to show your classmates what Jesus looked like. You're going to visit your family back home to show them what Jesus looks like. So there's never a time in our lives where we're not living on mission for Jesus. If you've been saved by him, then you've been given a purpose by him. And that is to live on mission in the world. And the church should have said, amen. Amen. So we've been studying through First Peter, which gives us a snapshot of what it's like to live as an exile in the world um, and to represent Christ in a world that may be, host- host- uh, may be hostile to what it is that you profess and you believe. And so today we're going to pick up in First Peter chapter two and we're going to read verses four through ten. First Peter chapter two, verses four through ten. First Peter chapter two, verses four through ten. And we are going to read together as it is our custom to do so. And we read together, not out of any tradition, traditional reasons. We read together because I think that repetition and reading out loud helps us to comprehend. And my goal as a pastor is not just to preach you, preach you so you can be inspired and you can live out your week until you come back for your next dose of spiritual drugs. Um, That's not my purpose um, in, in preaching to you, but my purpose is to grow you. And oftentimes we don't just being honest. We don't engage with our Bible a lot. And so I know it helps my conscience to know that, hey, at least I know that there's one time in a week that they have a responsibility to engage with God's God's word and read God's word for themselves. And so I hope that in the future, this will serve as a connection point to you to say, you know what? I know something about suffering. I know something about persecution. I know something about exiles. I know something about living as a Christian in the world. I know I can find in the Bible. It's in first Peter. But if I skip around, I'm in Psalms one Sunday and I'm in Mark one Sunday and I'm in Luke one Sunday and I'm in Ezekiel one Sunday. It's all the same to you. But but this is to help us grow together as believers to know what we believe and then be able to explain it to somebody else. Amen. So first Peter, chapter two, verses four through ten. We're going to read real loud. We're going to read with some excitement. We're going to read like we didn't lose an hour. We're going to read like this is the regular nine o'clock service. All right. We're going to read with some conviction because this is God's word that he's left for us. Amen. Ready? Read like it's 11 a.m. Praise God. Read like it's 11. Go! Are y'all struggling, baby? Y'all struggling. All right. All right, class. A lot of y'all went to UCF. A lot of y'all go to UCF. They need to get y'all a discount if this is what's going on. Y'all need a discount. Uh, So we count to three, right? All right, count to three. And then we're going to read together. All right, brother, you look, you ready? He look, you ready? He ready. All right, ready? One, two, three. Read. Seeing I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. 
Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today, God. We celebrate you. We honor you today. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be exalted today. Lord, so much is going on in the world, Father. Um, so much for us to, um, so many reasons for us to look to you, God, as our only hope. Uh, Father, we pray today, God, for those who have been affected by what's called um, the corona, coronavirus, God. We pray um, that as it's has spread, God, we pray that you would cause it to cease, Father. Um, Lord, if there's anybody who has any power, it is you. And so today we put our hope, our faith, our trust in you, God, and your miraculous supernatural power, God. Um, we saw throughout the scriptures, God, we've read throughout the scriptures where you've healed every manner of sickness and disease, Father. And so, Father, I pray today twofold. One, for those who have been affected, that they will be healed in Jesus' name. And secondly, Father, I pray that you will protect us, Father, um, from what may be to come, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we will put our hope in you, God, that, that we would trust in your power and in your sovereignty, Father. One of the beautiful things about being in Christ, God, is we know that this is just a temporary stop, God. Even if a disease does come, God, we know that we have a, a living, uh, living relationship with you, Father, that even this life is not the end, but there's life to come, Lord. And so, Father, we just look to you, Father. We thank you for everything that you've done for us and everything that you're doing through us. And as we study together we journey through the Bible together, God. I pray that we will be actively engaged today. I pray, God, that we would respond today, God. I pray that we would participate today, God. I pray that we would um, look to you, Father. I pray that we would fall more in love with you, Lord. And so, God, we just thank you today for everything that you're going to say and everything that you're going to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. Our sermon title today is Living on Mission, Identity, that leads to responsibility, living on mission, identity that leads to responsibility. So we've been journeying through the book of First Peter over the last few weeks. And one of the things that has been highlighted is the holiness, the character and the nature of God. Peter's painted a beautiful picture to us of who God is, but he's also called us to mirror who God is in that we are called to be holy because God is holy. We've been set apart for his use. We've been set apart not to detach ourselves from the world, but we've been set apart for God to engage with the world because we're not of the world, um, but we live in the world. And so he has painted this picture of who God is and what we are supposed to do as a response to who God is as those who follow him. But with that being said, the people um, that Peter writes to are in a place called Asia Minor. They are what we call exiles. They've been exiled not because of anything that they've done wrong, but they are exiled because of what they believe about God. And so their religious beliefs, their, their faith and their trust has put them in a position to where they are now outcast in society, where they don't fit in anymore because of what they believe. And so they've been shunned. They deal with hostility because of what they believe about God. And so today, Peter doesn't want to talk to them so much about who God is, even though he'll talk about that to them. Today, he wants to talk to them about who they are, because oftentimes for us, the battles that we face is hard for us because we don't know who we are. But if you know who you are in God, no matter what comes to you in your life, no matter how hard it is, no matter who leaves you, no matter who you lose, no matter what you lose, no matter what you get rejected by. If you know that you are good with God, then you know that everything is OK. And so Peter is calling them to remind them and to let them know that your identity is not in the world. Your identity is actually in God. Your identity is not in what you can accomplish. Your identity is what God is in what God has already accomplished through his son. And so when Jesus got up out of that grave, you got out of the grave with him, too. And so you. You are a new person, a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old you is passed away. You are a new being. So your identity does not come from the world. Your identity is in God. If you don't hear anything else I say today, you need to remember when Monday comes or when you feel next week that your job doesn't fit you anymore, that you are too smart to be at the job, where you're in a relationship where you feel stuck and you feel that there is better for you. When you look at your bank account and you don't have enough money, please know that your identity is not tied to the those things, your identity is tied to who God says that you are. 
You need to understand that. And so our misunderstanding and our mistreatment by the world is something that should not surprise us. It should not drive us to despair. It should not make us question our faith. And surely it should not make us question the God that saved us. We should see the trials of this life that are caused by our faith in Christ to be nothing more than the training and proving ground of Christian character. It is a part of the call we receive from God as believers to see our trials as a means to prove our faith and to glorify God in the process, it is who we are. And so who we are is not what we can accomplish on our own. It's not our success. It's not our achievements. It's not our degrees. Who we are is God's people. We belong to him. And so for us as Christians, we can get caught up in the same way that the world sees and views everything. And so when you are in the world, you tend to ask this question of yourself when you get frustrated or you feel like you have not achieved what you are capable of achieving in the time frame that you thought you would achieve it. And so you start to ask a question like this. Who am I? Who am I? And typically the, the worldly natural response to who am I or if someone asks you who you are, you would say, well, I am an accountant. Well, I am a student. Well, I am a banker. Well, I am this or I am that or I am an engineer or I'm a mom or I'm a father or I'm a husband or I'm a wife. Or I'm a sister. Or I'm a brother. You may say that. But the question for us as Christians is not who am who uh, who am I? It's whose am I? It's whose am I? We have to ask the question, whose am I? Because if we know who we belong to, then we know who we are. And so that is the question for us. It's not who am I, it's whose am I? And so Peter wants to explain to them that the misfortune that they are experiencing being rejected by society is not a sign that God is rejecting his people. Instead, it is a sign that our rejection is in lockstep with the rejection of the one who saved us. Oftentimes, rejection from the world is confirmation that you've been received by God. And so for us, we see it the other way. When we are rejected by the world, we think that something is wrong with us. And so we have it backwards. We would rather be rejected by God and received by the world because we live in a world of peer pressure. And so we want people to receive us more than we want God to receive us. But here's the thing you need to know today. If you are good with God, it doesn't matter what your position is with people. And so it says, as you come to him, as you come to him, here's what we need to know, that we share something in common with the one that saved us. We are rejected because he was rejected. And so Peter wants to explain this to us. So Peter uses what would have been a common illustration and analogy to them, but something that they were Jewish Christians, which they were not. They were Gentiles. But if they've read the Old Testament, they would have been familiar with this analogy that the writers of the Psalms and the prophets used. And it's this analogy of stones, this analogy of building something. And so Peter wants them to know that they are living stones and that they serve a living stone. Back in those days, stonemasons or builders, before they did a building project, they would scour all over the place to search and find boulders that they could use and build a foundation with. They were looking for boulders to serve as something called a cornerstone. And so they would see stones, they would reject some of them, throw some of them away until they found the one with the right shape and the right size that could be a foundation for them to build on. And so here's what you need to know about a cornerstone because you'll see this if you read the Bible. A cornerstone is important because it is the first stone that is set in the construction of a building foundation. Other stones will be set in reference to the cornerstone, which determines the position of the entire structure. And so the cornerstone not only sets the direction of the rest of the building, the cornerstone supports the entire building. And from the cornerstone being set in place, the other stones rise from the cornerstone. But without a cornerstone, the foundation of any building could fall at any time. And so you need to understand that cornerstones were important because cornerstones were the foundation. Cornerstones were the foundation of any building. And here's what it says in verses four through five. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves 
as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so here's what happens. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were looking for a stone to build their lives upon. They were looking for this Messiah to come and save his people. And so they discarded stone after stone after stone looking for this cornerstone to build from. And then they found the perfect stone. They examined the stone, but they saw no use for the stone. They threw it away as useless. They crucified the stone. They killed the stone and buried the stone, even though he was a perfect stone. But God raised that same stone from the grave and that stone became a a living stone, which then became the cornerstone. And so the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And so you see in the text that it says that he was rejected by people. And so I want to say this, his rejection was actually God's acceptance. And so your rejection is actually God's acceptance. And so Jesus' rejection is actually for believers, is our, is our rejection. And so Jesus comes to save sinners, but he was rejected from the time Jesus came on the scene. I want to read something to you in Mark's gospel from Mark chapter 6. Verse three, and it says this about Jesus. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon. And his sisters live right around the corner. And the people were deeply offended and they refused to believe him. The first thing you see, they're rejecting Jesus because of Jesus's career. Now, oftentimes when we think about God, we think that. If God would come, God would come as a CEO. God would come as a boss. He'd be bossed up. But he's a carpenter. He gets his hands dirty. He's, he's not a blue collar fellow. He's a carpenter. And then they, they, they have, he has this career rejection because he doesn't do anything what would be seemingly significant. But we know because we live on mission, it doesn't matter what we do. All of its significance because we do it in the honor of God. So if you are a carpenter or if you are executive, you still live on mission because you do it for God. So never find insignificance in what you do because of what you get paid. Your significance is not what you get paid or not what your position says. Your significance is that God sent you there to work on his behalf. Jesus rejected because of his career, but then they start talking about Jesus' family. The name's his brothers, and then it says his sisters live right here. You know his sisters? The girl, they do hair around the corner. You know, when you go need to get your lace done, his sisters. So, so the girl that do the lace fronts, you know, the girl that do the braids. You go to her when you can't afford to go to the real shop. This, you, so he can't be the Messiah. Did I take it too far? I'm writing right where I should be. Your rejection is God's acceptance. So you see, he gets rejected because of where he came from. Because of his family. And then John 1, chapter 11, says he came to his own, and those who were, who were his own did not even receive him. So even people from his own race didn't receive him. Sometimes it'd be your own people. And so you see Jesus has family rejection, career rejection, and racial rejection. And so we all experience some form of rejection at some point in our lives. And throughout life, people are rejected by parents, people are rejected by family, sometimes you're rejected while dating, and sometimes, unfortunately, people can be rejected by a spouse. The people can be rejected in their careers or being rejected by not being accepted in the school. That was your first choice. But if you have ever experienced rejection in your life, I came here today to tell you, don't fret. If you've been rejected by the world when you didn't do anything wrong, your rejection is actually God's acceptance. You are right where he wants you to be. So the good news is that he was chosen and honored by God. It says that he was chosen, chosen and honored by God. The cross was not an accident. His death was not an accident or happenstance. The resurrection was not an accident. The rejection of all rejections is when a perfect and sinless person is not an accepted and rejected by, by the world, but yet he is killed on a cross. That is the worst type of rejection. You might have you might have got fired, but you ain't never been hung on a cross. Somebody might have not been interested in you after dating you for a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years, but they ain't hang you on a cross. You might have been denied some aid for school, 
She went hung on a cross. Your father might have walked away from you and you don't have a real good relationship with him. He didn't hang on, hang you on a cross. You're still here today. You survived to tell about it. So sometimes people's rejection doesn't tell you that something's wrong with you. It just means that you're in good company with the one that called you. So he's rejected by men so that you and I could be accepted and affirmed by God. If Jesus is not rejected, then you and I can't be received by God. Because if Jesus doesn't go to the cross for our sins, when we go in God's presence, guess what we deal with? We'd have to deal with God's rejection. But because Jesus took on our stuff and stood in our place when we go to God now, we can go boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy in our time of need. That, that, that's acceptance by God. And so his rejection means our acceptance. And so we struggle with this idea of acceptance as believers because we don't live in reality that our identity is in Christ Jesus. We do our best to find our identity in all the things that the world does, like houses, cars, jobs, degrees, followers on social media, likes on pictures, success, your family. And so here's how you know that your identity is not rooted and grounded in Christ. It's that you post a picture and you get 300 likes. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm doing it now. And then you follow up with that, try to do that repeat performance. And this one only hit for like 100. And you are depressed. And you say, man, maybe I should take this down and start all over again. I didn't use the right filter. Really, what that's communicating is that you posted that to be received by people. And if somebody rejecting you and not liking something on social media, and change your mood, then maybe your identity ain't grounded where it needs to be grounded. So we have to come to grips with where does our identity lie. If you change with your environment, then your identity may not be in God. If there's a church you and a school you, then maybe your identity is not in God. If there's a church you and there's a work you, God is calling you to make that duplicity go away and calling you to become one. Because when Christ saved you, you became one in him. So we, we can't be changed by our environment. If, if you, your relationships mold you, then you struggle with identity. Think about all the countless people you know who were one way, but then they got into some sort of relationship and you're like, I thought you loved Jesus. Well, now we just look at the sun all day. I'm spiritual now because he's spiritual. But I thought you said you love Jesus. Well, there are many ways to God. Yeah, that's right, Pastor. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's right, Pastor. Yeah, girl, you love who you want to love. You, you be in a relationship with whoever you want to be in a relationship. God, 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 God forgives us all. It doesn't matter what you want to do. We lift our hands in the sanctuary. Two different identities. Oh, I love Jesus. But at work, they know you're somebody else. Your identity is not in God. If your opinions change rapidly, if your opinions are influenced by what you see on social media and not by the word of God, then maybe your identity is not in God. And I'm not telling you this to condemn you. What I'm saying is when God saves you, he gave you identity and that identity does not change. You are a new person in Christ. And so our identity does not lie in what we believe about the world or what we see on social media or about what we've experienced in life or about what people tell us. Our identity is actually in God. And when you know that your identity in God, there's a peace that comes with that. There's a peace knowing that no matter what people think about me, I am accepted and loved by God. The greatest thing somebody could have ever told me as a pastor when I was going through a trial in my life is that, do you know that God loves you? And I was like, really? See, it's one thing to preach about it. It's another thing to live in it. And our acceptance is not from culture. Our acceptance is from God because our identity is in him. But with that identity comes a responsibility. Here's what it says in verse 5. 
If you read in your Bible, it says this, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice something that he says that that we are living stones that are being built. And so uh, the stones that he's talking about are living stones. They're not idle stones. They're not isolated stones. They're not inactive stones. The stones all have a purpose that serves the building. The stones are working together. The stones are actually active stones that do something. They, the stones actually actually do something. But how is it that we have so many believers that come to church and they don't do nothing? And so we got a church half of living stones and half of dead stones. But when God called you, he called you not to be idle. He called you to be part of the purpose in building up a spiritual house, which is the church. And so Jesus serves as the cornerstone, the foundation in which we build everything else on. And so we all play a role in building this spiritual house. And so God calls us to be a part of a community that works in the world on behalf of God to continue to build his kingdom and advance his kingdom. And so it calls us away from self-centeredness that culture has, has indoctrinated us with. And so if you are a believer, God didn't call you to do Christianity in isolation by yourself, but he calls you and brought you into a community of people in which you work together to glorify God in the world. But how is it that we feel so comfortable just coming on Sunday morning and hearing God's word and never doing anything? And if you have a church of 300, why is it only 50 living stones? And the same living stones are living every week. And the rest of the stones just come and sit on the living stones like dead weight. Why is it not building? Why is it not growing? Because only 50 are engaged. 50 are living. The rest are just, that is really nice. Wow, look at y'all work so hard. Look at you serving. You open the door for me every week that I come here to receive the word of God. When are you going to turn around and serve the same people that are serving you? Do you know God called us to serve each other? That that is not just a group of people that do all the special work of ministry, but that God called all of us to be ministers of reconciliation? That, that, That all of us are to be actively engaged in the work of ministry in the local church and in the world? And so we are living stones, not dead stones or inactive stones. And we are living stones because Jesus is a living stone. Why was he a living stone? Because God made him alive and raised him from the grave. And when he was raised, we were raised with him. And so we offer spiritual sacrifices as living stones. Essentially what that's saying is we offer God all of our lives. There's no part of our life that's not touched by God, that every aspect of our life is lived in honor of him. We make spiritual sacrifices by doing everything in his honor that we give him our, the totality of who we are and the totality of our lives if we've been called by him. And so it says this in verse six, for it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored stone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. I want to pause right there. I want to pause right there. It says that we will never be put to shame. If you struggle with living out your Christian faith, Because maybe you've done some things in your past and now it would look weird to people for you to make this radical change. He says you don't have to be ashamed. If you feel out of place because of what you believe about God and that you hold fast to his word, but it makes you feel out of place in your circle or in your sphere of influence. He's saying eventually you won't be put to shame. But just like Jesus was chosen and honored because you are his, you will be chosen and honored as well. You are chosen, but you will be honored. That that even though the world may reject you, you may feel embarrassed to say that I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. That may sound insensitive in this day and culture. God says you won't be ashamed because at some point in the future, every truth will be laid bare. That that my word will be true. And so you don't have to be uh, fearful or fret what you believe. I ain't saying you be insensitive. But I am saying you can stand and speak the truth in love. And so he's called us not to compromise, but he's called us to be bold because we will not be put to shame. 
that, that we will be vindicated by God on the day of judgment. But however, for the others, for the others, there is something different. There is something different that he tells us in verse seven. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. Uh oh, here's the problem. In verse eight, it says that they were destined for this. I want to read that again. I want you to feel the weight of that in verse eight. Here's what it says about this stone. He's a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. And then here's the thing that should cause fear and trembling. They were destined for this. He's talking about unbelievers. He says that they were destined to stumble and fall. How can that how can that be? Let me give you some context. The religious leaders of Jesus day thought that they were building something for God, but they rejected Christ, who God actually chose as the cornerstone of what they were building. Instead, they rejected him, threw him away. They considered him useless, but he was not and is not some old piece of stone that you throw away. Jesus, when you think about him as a cornerstone, I don't want you to think of rock or pebble or, or pebble or brick. I want you to think of boulder. Have you seen a boulder before? Have you seen what the boulders in Colorado look like? Boulders are not small. If you put a boulder in the middle of a narrow two-way street, there ain't no way around it. A boulder is something big. So when you think of Jesus being a cornerstone, I need you to think boulder. Now, there's a, there's a couple things about a boulder. Um, you can lean on it. You can put the full gravity of your weight on it. You can stand on top of it, but you can't move it. You can lean on it and you can have safety and security. You can hide behind a boulder so the enemies can't get to you. You, you can do all of it. You can build your life on top of the boulder because it's secure. You can put your hope and trust on this boulder. But if you try to run over the boulder, you'll crash and kill yourself. If you try to go around the boulder and avoid it, you can't because it's too big. And oftentimes the world tries to treat Jesus like a pebble, but Jesus ain't no pebble. Jesus is actually a boulder. And so you have to deal with the boulder that's in front of you. And no matter what you do, you can't escape it. He's too wide. He's too big. He's too vast. He's too weighty. And you cannot move him out of the way. And how you choose to respond to him is how you experience him. So if you see him as something to lean on, then it'll give you all the safety and security you need. But if you see him as something to move out of your way, you can't get him out of your way. You got to deal with him. But Jesus tells us that he becomes a rock to trip over and something to stumble over. And the problem is that the rejection that the culture has for Jesus doesn't make Jesus go away. They can't move him out of the way. Here's what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 21, verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter of him. That's scary. That is scary to think that Jesus is this stone that people fall and stumble over. But I want to deal with what it says in verse 8. It says that they were destined for this. That if they reject the gospel message, the world's refusal, you know what you and I think? You and I think sometimes when we try to tell people about Jesus, we have family members, we have people our jobs, even people in our churches that we try to tell about Jesus and they just don't seem to get it. We think if I would have just explained it a little bit better, if I would have just had the right answer to the question that they asked me, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Like, dog, I know I could find that scripture. If I only knew what God said about dinosaurs, they would have gave their life to Jesus. 
Let me tell you something and free you. It don't matter if you would have gave them an explanation about dinosaurs or mosquitoes. Their refusal of God is not an accident. That is outright rebellion on their part. Let me free you. You can be the greatest apologist in the world. It don't matter if God didn't call them and compel them. They're not going to respond to you. So don't, don't feel like I got to have all the answers because they're going to ask me some tricky questions. Gotta, I got to know the whole Old Testament because they're going to throw some scriptures at me that I don't know. Guess what? You should read your Bible and you should try to know the answers. But even if you do answer and they do respond, it wasn't because you gave them a good explanation. It was because God called them and he just used you to call them. So please rest in knowing that it ain't about you or how well or how eloquent you can explain the gospel or how well you can preach the gospel. It does not matter. Some people will not re receive what you have to say. But it's not about you. It's about the outward rebellion of God because God is already obvious to the people that we're talking to. And so he's telling us like he determined that they would disbelieve and stumble. How is it that my sweet, my sweet Jesus could be sovereign even over somebody's rejection of, of the word of God. I mean, that's something separate. I mean, God, God, like, he's over the good stuff. He has nothing to do with the bad stuff. But I want to challenge your thinking this morning. What if I told you that God was sovereign over everything? I didn't say God created evil. I just said he's sovereign over it. Pastor, I'm going to back away from you right now because you, you're scaring me, brother. The prophet Isaiah says something interesting in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7. He says something real interesting. He says, speaking for God, here's what Isaiah says. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. In case you didn't know who I was talking about, he gonna double, he's doubling down. I am the Lord. Who does all these things? So we begin to ask, well, how is that possible? Well, either God is controlling everything or he's not controlling anything. You see, we want God to be in control over the good stuff. But when it's not good stuff, it's the devil. As if to say that they're on the same level. As if to say that Satan is a worthy competitor to to God. Do you know what happened to Lucifer? The Bible says that he fell like, like, like literally God like flicked him off. He's a giant to you and I, but he's nothing to God. And so God is sovereign over all things. And so we have to accept his sovereignty even in negative things that might happen to us or around us. You see, we can celebrate some stuff. But then we turn a blind eye, not blind eye, but we look down on other stuff that happens. You see, we can celebrate God's goodness, but then we frown upon tragedy that happens. And I'm not saying you should be happy. You should just know that God is sovereign. We, we have no problem praising and shouting that we are forgiven and free from sin. We'll say that God can, can't be sovereign over disastrous events, yet we celebrate as Christians the most cruelest and vicious act in human history, the execution of an innocent man on the cross for our sins, but that too was predestined by God. And so if God was pre, pre, uh, 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 sovereign over that, if he, he preordained that, then surely God is sovereign over everything else that happens. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says this, though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. And what he's saying is this, although they killed him, it wasn't out of the scope of God. God already knew what was happening and God was sovereign over it. Well, pastor, how am I supposed to feel, feel about that? You should rejoice because he's called you and saved you. The question is, well, why would he save some and not others? Why would he save some and not others? That ain't the question. The question is, the wonder in all is, is that he would save anybody at all. It is a miracle that he saved any of us. Because none of us deserve to be saved. And when we realize that, our attitude toward God is different. Two kids in trouble. The father decides to whip one and take the other for ice cream. 
Now, the one that's going for ice cream might be like, well, shouldn't he be able to come too? No, that's not the question. The question is, how come I ain't get a whooping either? So it's not a reason for us to question. It's a reason for us to rejoice. That thank God that my name will be written in the Lamb's book of life. That thank God that I am saved. Thank God that he saw fit to save me. And I'll do my best to preach the gospel and let everybody know about this good news that I found. So he saves us and gives us an identity. And here's what he says about our identity in verse nine. It's beautiful. If you ever struggle with knowing who you are or how God sees you, verse nine is a beautiful passage. Here's what it says. First Peter, chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. And he gives us this beautiful identity that we've been chosen by God, that we are royal priesthood, that we've been set apart, and that we are people for his own possession. And so he gives us as believers a responsibility. So here's where the sermon title comes from. He gives us this identity. And with that identity, we have a responsibility. And here's our responsibility. I'm going to give you six things that we as believers do as a response to who we are. Number one, we proclaim him by telling others about his goodness. We proclaim him by telling others about his goodness. We tell them about the one that brought us from darkness to light. We proclaim him to other nations, no matter who they are, no matter what their ethnicity are. We tell people about the goodness of Jesus. The second thing we do, we are mediators between God and the world. We are bringing and reconciling God back to his creation. We represent God in the rest of the, to the rest of the world. Number one, we proclaim him by telling others about him. Number two, we are his mediators. Number three, we intercede for the rest of the world. Right. We pray for the rest of the world. Unbelievers and believers, we pray for everybody. The fourth thing is that we, were, we serve the world with our deeds. We don't just serve other Christians. We serve everybody. Amen. You serve your neighbor. God says, Love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't mean love your Christian neighbor. He meant love your neighbor neighbor. Love your black neighbor. Love your white neighbor. Love your Hispanic neighbor. Love your Asian neighbor. Love your Indian neighbor. Love all your neighbors. And so he calls us to serve the world by our deeds. A person does not need to be a Christian in order for you to serve them. But by serving them, you will represent God to them. The next thing we do is we invite them. We invite them into this light, not invite them to church. Although you should invite people to church, you invite them into this relationship and this joy that you found. And the last thing, and maybe one of the most important things, is that we demonstrate to people who God is with our lives. It's not just right telling, it's also right living. Our lives oftentimes say more than our words ever could. Our lives will say more than our words ever could. And so, yes, you should have right theology. You should, have, you should know your Bible. But your life should look like something. Your life should be so compelling that people wonder about the one that saved you. And so this Christian identity leads to responsibility for us to live on mission. Here's what it says in Hebrews 13, verses 13 through 16, and I'm almost done. Here's what it says in Hebrews 13, 13 through 16. Here's what it says. So let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home 
yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want to explain to you something. Oftentimes, we get confused between grace and mercy, and we say them like they're one word. But grace and mercy are two separate things. We should praise God for his grace, for his mercy, just as much as we praise God for his grace. When we talk about the grace of God, we talk about God giving us something that we do not deserve. We call it the favor of God. But we've narrowed it down and made it so shallow that we correlate the favor of God with houses, cars, and money. God's favor is on my life. Do you know if you are dead broke but you're saved, God's favor is on your life because God gave you something you didn't deserve, which is his salvation, that he gave you his Holy Spirit, that he cleaned your life up, that he made you new again, that he's protecting you each and every day, that even if you don't have money, you're sitting here, that means God provided something for you. That is the favor of God. And so favor of God ain't just when you got a bank account full of money. The favor of God is I woke up this morning. I know who Jesus is. I am saved and I'm going to heaven. That is the favor of God that's the favor but we respond to his mercy his mercy is him not giving us what we actually do deserve what do we deserve God's wrath because we are sinners that sounds offensive to say in church. You talking about sin? Yeah, sin, 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 sin. <laughs> because if we can't own up that we are sinners, then what we're saying is we don't have a need for a savior. And God saw us yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we are benefactors of the mercy of God who saw us, saw our pitiful plight. And instead of giving us what we deserve, he had compassion for us. And when I hear that, that don't make me want to be idle. That makes me want to do something. Not to achieve something so that he can receive me. I've already been received. But I want to do something from the motivation of what has already been done for me. That he didn't give me what I deserve. So I'm going to give him the glory that he does deserve. I ain't going to just say it with my mouth. I'm going to do it with my life. And so our identity leads to responsibility. God never say, I'll say this as long as I'm the pastor of this church. I'm going to have a beard that's gray all the way down to my kneecaps. My hairline is receding. I pray it doesn't because I'm going to find something to put in there, put a little plant or something. <laughs> Keeping my age. I'm holding on for dear life in my hair. I'm serious. Just let you know. I'm just let you know. God doesn't just save you to save you. He freed you from slavery and bondage to sin and made you a slave to him. You're still enslaved, but it's a different kind of slavery. It's a slavery that is freedom. So he saved us to do something, to live on mission in the world. So tomorrow, on your way fighting through traffic, whether it's I-4, 408, well, 436, God help you. <laughs> he saved me. God, you know how I feel about this job. You know how I feel about my coworkers. You know how I feel about my boss. And Lord, I'm not going to pray one of them David prayers about God give my enemies this morning. Lord, I'm praying today that you give me the strength to be your representative right where I am. And that posture should turn you from a disgruntled employee 
to one who finds purpose and value in where God has you now. It should make you a student that doesn't just roll your eyes because you're waiting to get your degree. Say, God, you put me here to learn this. I know I'll pass with a C minus, but I'm honor you. <laughs> and if I'm a C student, it's because I'm just a C student, but it's not because I'm lazy. Because you didn't save me to be lazy. You didn't save me to be derelict and last minute. Lord, I'm, I'm getting to work early. Not so I get a good parking space. So I can park next to the building, right next to the door. So I can leave quicker than everybody else. And not have to fight traffic after work when everybody else makes the rush out the door. But Lord, I'm going to show up on time, even if it's one minute early. And I'm sitting here because I'm working as unto the Lord. And my work ain't about me or them. My work is about you. And as I work as unto the Lord, I'm praying that it is so attractive to my coworkers that before they even think about giving me a promotion, they think about who, who, who is he? And you already know who you are. And so we have to live from that posture. Because God gives us an identity that has led to responsibility. And as we build together in his house and in the world, we expand the kingdom. We expand the kingdom and we do what he's called us to do. So today, verse nine gave us identity. He told us who we were, that we were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. You got your identity, but now you have your responsibility to proclaim his praises in every area of your life. Let us pray. We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.